Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9 Chai FM. I am Rabbi Ari Kievman and it's great to be with you here today. And today we're addressing a question that many of our listeners have asked. What is a rabbi? So today what we're going to do is give you a little brief history of smicha, rabbinic ordination. It's sort of what brought me here into the South African community as I came here to study for my smicha nearly 20 years ago in Pretoria under the guidance of Rabbi Levi Weinberg, who was the Rosh Yeshiva. I spent a year before that in Linksville at the Yeshiva with Rabbi Wagner, and at that time, Got acquainted with the community, started working with Chabad House, volunteering, helping out. And before I knew it, became full-time involved with the Chabad House activities programs. And from one thing to another, running seniors programs to the Jewish Learning Institute, to opening our own shul in Santon during the World Cup 11 years ago. Remember that? Just about this time, 11 years ago. And what could I say? The rest is history or my story. But that is just uh, the way it is. So what I'm going to do today is share with you a little bit about the background of rabbinics. And I want to welcome you to join me on Monday morning for a webinar, Monday morning, 10 a.m., where please God with text-based visuals, you'll have the opportunity to learn more about the origins and the history of rabbinics. Now, the word rabbi means my master, rabbi. In Hebrew, a rabbi is a religious leader of our people. And some rabbis lead congregations. Many rabbis in the community have big shuls. Some have smaller shuls. Some are into outreach communities. Some are more, more religiously observant. Some not as much. Regardless, the word rabbi is more of a teacher. And therefore, it's not necessarily a formal position because many people are ordained as rabbis, but don't necessarily practice as such. And to become a rabbi, just as one becoming a doctor has to go through residency and study for a number of years in order to reach that point when they earn the title rabbi, well, to be a rabbi as well, sorry, to be a doctor. You see, I'm, I'm working on the rabbi doctor, so it's getting a little bit complicated. And with any profession, of course, you have to study. And likewise, to become a rabbi, one has to study. And the certification is called smicha. Some call it rabbinic ordination. Now, of course, just as in perhaps any profession, take medicine as, as well again. You know, I'm a paramedic, studied a little bit of medicine. But certainly in medicine and accounting, in law, there are professionals whose expertise is a particular field. So one might be a psychologist, another might be a cardiologist, while one might be a GP, and I would say perhaps most rabbis are ordained more like GPs, you know, you're a general practitioner, you know a little bit about everything in rabbinics, but when it comes to specific expertise, you know, areas that are Give you an example that came to mind just this morning when somebody called me about a halachic living will. What decisions could be made? End of life decisions. Now, I've done presentations here on Chai FM exactly about that. But that's not necessarily my field of expertise. And in order to make such a decision, if it's my congregant to, 
touches base with me, either myself or together with them, I would consult with someone who is more trained in that particular area of Jewish law. So just as in any other profession, there's one who might have an understanding of general law, of general medicine, of general accounting, and then there are those who are professionals in a particular field of expertise that they've spent more time studying and they know and understand the laws and the intricacies and the nuances and the minutiae, everything else that's related to that particular area, rabbinics is the same. So generally speaking, that is the basics of a rabbi. In common parlance, a rabbi with advanced training, in someone who's who's more expert would probably be known as a rav. If you look at the rabbanim of our community in the Basin, they have spent a lot more time studying rabbinic law, studying Torah law, have a lot more understanding, a much wider scope of it, whether it's laws of kashrut, which itself is very complex, or the laws of marriage and the laws of birth and bris and everything from cradle to grave, from hatch to match and dispatch. You know, all the laws in between for a rabbi who's officiating a marriage or a divorce, not one that most rabbis want to be dealing with, but the rabbanim at the basin are the ones who have that expertise and they're the ones who can really direct and guide one in that particular area. What's very interesting is, and the Gemara talks about the great Talmudic sage, who was actually a physician, and his name was Shmuel. He once visited Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, Rabbi Yehuda the prince, who was great, great sage, a, a diplomat, a politically connected person. He was the redactor of the Mishnah. He's one who compiled all the teachings of the Mishnah, put it together, in a sense, saving the oral law, which until that time was only transmitted, was taught by oral tradition. And here he went and compiled it into what we know as the Mishnah, which then was further expounded in the Talmud. And then, of course, all the great sages following the Tanaim and Amaraim come the Rishonim and the Acharonim and the, and, and all the various Gaonim and sages throughout our history up, up until this day. Now, Rabbi Yehuda Anasi, we're talking about 1800 years ago or so, maybe probably a little bit more. And he was suffering from an ailment of the eyes. You know, somebody told me once about a certain rabbi. He said he has an eye problem. I said, really? Let's get him over to my friend, Dr. Joel Dorfin. You know, Joel Dorfin can sort him out. And he says, no, no, no. You don't understand what I mean by eye problem. Well, <laughs> he didn't need that kind of medical attention. In this case, we're talking about the great sage, Rabbi Yudah Nasi who had problems with his eyesight. And Shmuel, the doctor, Shmuel, wanted to insert medicine to the rabbi's eyes. But Rabbi Yudanasi said that he couldn't endure such a treatment. Well, Shmuel said, in that case, I'll gently smear some of the medication on your eyes. And again, the rabbi said, I can't endure that either. Just too much for him. Well, Faced with this dilemma, Shmuel placed a tube of the medication 
under Rabbi Yehuda's pillow. And sure enough, Rabbi Yehuda recovered. Well, when Rabbi Yehuda saw what a great expert to medical matters Shmuel was, and not only in medicine, but he realized what a great Talmud Chacham, what a great Torah scholar and sage he was too. Rabbi Yehuda wanted to give him smicha to ordain him and to call him a rabbi. But every time he tried, he wasn't able to gather the requisite people to perform the rabbinic ordination because back then, smicha was not exactly as it is today. Today it's more of a formality. It's just a title. Rabbi Yehuda was known as Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, was the leader. Besides for the regular requirement of having two other people who would join him when ordaining someone, Rabbi Yehuda Nasi he also needed to be accompanied by the Av Bastin, by the head of the rabbinical court at the time, which was the only way he would be able to actually perform the smicha. So Shmuel said to Rabbi Yehuda, you see, you don't have to trouble yourself. I've seen it written in the book of Adam Arisham, as well as in the book of, I don't remember where else, but he saw it in the book of Adam Arisham. It said that Shmuel Yarichana, Yarchina, will be a great sage but he shouldn't bear the title of rabbi. And that's very interesting because if you look throughout the Talmud, you'll, you'll notice that many of the great, great sages were just called by their name. They weren't called rabbi per se. And the Talmud in Avodah Zarah, tracted Avodah Zarah, Daf, Hayamad Aleph, it says that Adam was known by God all the sages and leaders of the subsequent generations, they, they knew, he knew all of them. So in a dream, Shmuel was shown this book of Adam, which recorded what Adam saw, that Shmuel would be a great sage, but he wouldn't have this title, Rabbi. So that's very interesting. And also his title, it was called Shmuel Yarchina. Yarchina comes from the root word Yerach. Yerach is the moon. So Shmuel was called Yarchina because of his great expertise, I guess not only in medical matters, but also in astronomy. He understood the different astrological and astronomical aspects. So quite a great sage and scholar, yet he didn't feel the need to be called by the title Rabbi. It's interesting, I'll make a little self-confession here, that personally with my congregants, I don't, you know, we're just buddies, we're friends. My my congregants, my members call me Ari, and I'm happy with that and it's good. But there's a little ego in me when, you know, a young bacharel, a kid, calls me Ari by my name. And there's nothing wrong. My name is Ari, and that's what most of my friends call me. In fact, I never really intended to go into the rabbinical world. It's one of my little dichotomies that I still, that still plagues me. And yet, it bothers me when a young boy just calls me Ari. But I don't know if it's only my ego. I'm just saying this straight up out there. I feel it's a matter of education. It bothers me when kids call their parents by their first name. It just seems disrespectful. And so my insistence of young kids calling me with a title rabbi and not insisting that with my congregants, with my members, because I feel like we're friends and we're buddies and that's 
perfectly fine. But I think kids need to know the respect that's required, not for me, Ari Kievman, but when they're standing by the doctor, don't just call the doctor Joe. He's your doctor. Give him the title he deserves. Or she's your teacher. Give her the title she deserves. Don't just call her by her name. Likewise, your parents. And likewise, a rabbi who deserves that respect. So for, if you're one of those who I may have corrected, there weren't that many in, throughout the years. But that's perhaps the reason. But on the other hand, many, many great sages, as we see Shmuel here, was not called by the name, by the title rabbi. But rather, he went with his name, Shmuel, and he saw it in the book of Adam, all the way back to Adam Arisha, that it was fine to call him by his name, not with any titles. Very interesting. And what's interesting as well is that the Gemara says that Shmuel was a descendant of the high priest, Eli. And the Gemara says that he was, the Gemara tells us, that he was cursed, that they'll never be ordained, his family, to sit in judgment on the Sanhedrin. So perhaps that's why he didn't get the title. But regardless, it didn't seem to bother him. And he seemed to be just fine with it. Now, the title rabbi, actually, if you look at the great, great sages of the Mishnah, I don't think very many of them are called rabbi. Yes, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi is. He's called Rebbe which is actually an acronym for Rosh B'nai Yisrael, the head of the Jewish household. But it wasn't until the second century that the title rabbi, literally my master, my teacher, became an official title for the rabbinic fraternity. And until that time, even the greatest sages and prophets were not given any honorifics. I mean, you think of of, of Aaron HaKohen, Moshe Rabbeinu, Yehoshua, you know, yes, these are the great prophets, the leaders of our history, but they're just called by their names. And we think about some of the others, the, the Mishnaic ones coming to my mind, Abaya, Rava, they were just called by their names. I don't know if Rava was his name. Maybe Rava was also some kind of a title, but for the most part, the great sages of the Mishnah, with exception, yes, some were called, and like I said, it was in the second century, so maybe the later Tanaim got the title rabbi. But over the centuries, the meaning of the title and the requirements for receiving it, it evolved quite a bit. And in order to understand what rabbi means today, please come join us back in a few moments. And we'll take a look at the history of rabbinic ordination, of smicha. And again, if you want to go more in depth and with the text-based visuals, join us Monday morning. On our Zoom. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9 Hi FM. I'm Rabbi Ari Kievman. Great to be with you here this afternoon. And today we're talking about the origins of smicha. What is a rabbi? And although the title itself is certainly a more recent development, the ordination of spiritual leaders really began way back when, at the dawn of Jewish history. The original form of smicha, of rabbinic ordination, was passed down basically from teacher to student, 
who in turn became teacher of their students. And it was basically an unbroken chain that really goes all the way back up to Moshe Rabbeinu. And classical smicha back then ensured that the student was the next link in the Sinaic, what I mean, like from Sinai, in the tradition, and authorized that person to judge cases which involved any sort of punitive punishment. Because don't forget that in the time of the temple, there was a Sanhedrin. And back then, they did perform all the necessary legislative legal matters that were, that a based in was required to to perform the to execute to ensure to enforce the laws so such as if a person required a particular type of punishment including capital punishment so the first person to be ordained in history was Yahushua Joshua in fact we're going to read it in the parsha soon Moshe placed his hands upon him and as the pasuk says he placed his hands on him and commanded him in accordance with what Hashem spoke What's the word? Smicha. Smicha literally means laying the hands. So in a sense, although smicha is a youth, uh, reference to rabbinic ordination today, literally it was the rabbi, as Moshe Rabbeinu did, placing his hands on a student and saying, you're now ordained as a rabbi or as the leader, as a teacher, as a mentor for the community. And similarly, we find that Moshe Rabbeinu, not only did he ordain Yehoshua, Joshua, but he did so to the Shivim Zakanim, to the 70 elders, to the judges. Even though it doesn't say he laid his hands, that he placed his hands on them, but it was the same process. The physical laying of hands was not continued in later generations, and smicha came just basically to mean that a person is a rabbi. I don't recall if the rabbis who ordained me, Rabbi Weinberg, Rabbi Varhaftig and Yabadu L'chaim Tevim, or, you know, who's deceased, was Rabbi Sharyash of Cohen, who we received smicha from, from the Heichel Shlomo Machon Ariel Institute in Israel. I don't remember if any of them put their hands on my head or not, telling me that I'm ordained. But back then, that's the way it went. They would place, the rabbi would place his hands on his students and say, you're ordained and you have the authority to render judgment, even in cases involving financial penalties. So Joshua and the 70 elders who were the judges, they were ordained by Moshe. And they then in turn passed that on to the following generations, to their students. If you read the first Mishnah of Perkyavot, Ethics of Our Fathers, it lays it out to us. Moshe kibbal Torah Sinai, that Moshe received the Torah from Almighty God on Mount Sinai, umesara Yeshua, and he passed the baton on to Joshua, who was his successor, v'yeshua lizakenim, and then Joshua to the elders, uskenim l'nevim, and then to the prophets, and then the Anche Knesset Tagdola, etc. But within each of those generations, as Moshe took the advice, his father-in-law-ly advice, you see, that's perhaps where the name Shver came from for a father-in-law. Difficult. Sometimes it's difficult for one to accept that father-in-law-ly advice, or they say advice is the only commodity with more in supply than demand. Well, Maisha listened to his father-in-law and made his life a little bit easier by appointing his whole system of judges. And so this tradition continued all the way until the Talmudic era, 
when the sages were able to they were able to trace a direct line of each of their teachers going all the way back to the courts of Yeshua and to Moshe, all the way back up to Mount Sinai. It's amazing that that tradition was an unbroken tradition. Only one who had that smicha from teacher to student going all the way back in that unbroken chain and was able to trace it was qualified to rule Jewish judgments to decide the laws. Now the first form of smicha, that first form of, of rabbinic ordination could only be granted under very specific conditions. And those conditions were firstly the one granting the smicha had to do so while accompanied by two others. And that's why, as I mentioned earlier in the story of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, although he wanted to grant smicha to Shmuel for whatever reason, obviously by divine providence, but he couldn't get the other two rabbis together. Smicha cannot be transmitted, cannot be conveyed by less than three judges. But if only one, only one of those three, only one of those three judges had to give the smicha, right? Or rather, even only one of them had to even be ordained himself. But the ordaining rabbi and the one receiving the ordination, they had to be done in Eretz Yisrael. It had to be in the land of Israel. Now, it's true that Joshua did not get a smicha in the land of Israel. I guess that's one of the exceptions. But they weren't required to be in each other's presence. Smicha could be granted through an oral or written message. So that's another interesting detail about this. Now, while the person could be ordained to rule only in a specific area of Jewish law, like we said before, one was an expert in a particular field. I mean, my smicha was mostly related to kashrut matters. I studied the laws of basar b'chalav, mixtures, combinations of milk and meat, what's allowed, what's not allowed. You know, and in a nutshell, if it's batl b'shishim, if it's nullified in 60, it's kosher. Now, obviously, it's a lot more complex and, and detailed than that. But we studied basar b'chalav, we studied the laws of taruvas, certain mixtures. We studied the laws of melicha, of salting meat, which, practically speaking, I guess when it was more recently decided, I don't know, a few centuries ago, of what modern-day smicha should look like, those were the areas chosen because perhaps a Jewish home with a kosher kitchen deals with these on a daily basis. But we also study the laws of Shabbos, we study the laws of Yuchsin, of Jewish lineage, genealogy related to marriage. We study the laws of mourning, of Avelos, and we studied the laws of kashering for Pesach, which comes in very handy as the director of the Pesach retreat program. Certainly, those are areas that are very relevant. I can't say all of my smicha is always handy, and I cannot say that if I was tested on the laws of smicha that I studied for 20 years ago, I would know it all today as I did then. But nevertheless... Back then, although one could get their smicha in a specific area of Jewish law, they still were required to be expert and qualified to rule in all areas of Jewish law. And in, in a sense, you could say that today, 
maybe a rabbi has a somewhat of a general knowledge in most areas, but I can, can't, you know, from an honestly, I can't say I know all areas of Jewish law. And I doubt any, I mean, maybe some rabbis in the community do, and those are the ones who are on the Basin, who are the communal leaders, who are the people. But even within the Basin, I won't go into the specifics, but some rabbis are more expert than the laws of Kashrut, and it's much more complex today than it ever was in a world of an industrial era where so many things are even made just by computer, and it, it's unbelievable the systems of how they work today. So it's definitely somewhat different in today's day and age. But back then, one had to be proficient. One had to be expert in a sense or, 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 or familiar with all the, all areas and aspects of Jewish law. And that smicha, the ordination to rule in matters relating to kashrus, that was referred to as yore yore. Yeah, may he decide. Yore yore, may he decide. It was probably a lot more of a relevant question that came all the, today we have mashkichim we have kosher supervisors in all food establishments who are inspecting and ensuring that the kashrut is maintained but before an industrial era we didn't have kashrut authorities the uos of 200 years ago most likely did not deal with supervising kashrut of restaurants and supermarkets and manufacturers just didn't didn't exist, so that was the original smicha. Yore yore, may he decide? May he may decide? Yore yore, may he decide? He may decide. He was qualified to decide. So, if one wanted to deal with litigation, with matters of of monetary disputes, then to rule regarding monetary issues, there's a different smicha, and that's called yadin yadin. Yadin may he judge? Yadin he may judge. My eldest brother lives in Australia, and he is a Dayan on the Basin there. All our Dayanim on the Basin here in Johannesburg are qualified both in Yore Yore and Yadin Yadin, I believe. And that is a qualification in order to be a Basin rabbi. So not only could a person be ordained to rule only in a specific area, he could also be ordained to rule only for a specific time period. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. There was no limit on how many people could be ordained at one time. In fact, King David, David Amalek, ordained 30 people at once. Originally, whoever was ordained would in turn ordain their students. But during the times of Hillel Hazakin, around the first century before the Common Era, as a gesture of respect to the remnants of the house of King David, the sages instituted that smicha could be conveyed only with the express permission of the generation's Jewish leader called the Nasi. At the same time, the sages also instituted that the Nasi should not convey smicha unless he was accompanied by the head of the rabbinical court known as the Av Beistin, and that the Av Beistin should not convey smicha unless accompanied by the Nasi. The other sages, however, could convey smicha by themselves after receiving license from the Nasi, provided they were accompanied by the two others. So basically, you needed three rabbinic judges in order for smicha to be conveyed from one to the other. The thing is, in the Mishnah and the Talmud, we find for the first time three titles. 
There it is. You have Rabbi, Rav, and Rabban. Now, Rabbi, the title Rabbi, was born by the sages in the land of Israel who were ordained there in accordance with a custom that was handed down by the elders, by the Zakanim. And that, of course, was the direct, they were the direct ears of this tradition, the Torah as taught by Moshe, as the tradition was passed on, and they were granted authority to judge all penal cases, judgments, punishments, litigations, all such types of matters. The title Rav was more common in Babel, in Babylonia. The Babylonian sages, they received ordination from their own schools in the diaspora outside of Israel, and they went by the title Rav. Since they were not ordained in Israel, their ability to rule was restricted, and it didn't include cases involving punitive damages, which basically was only rendered as judgments in the land of Israel. And considering the temple was already destroyed, although it continued for a number of years, I'm not sure exactly for how long, for some time after the temple's destruction, but basically, eventually, it withered away as the Jewish community was mostly pushed outside of Israel. Although there was an uninterrupted presence of Jews in Israel throughout our years of exile, there was always a presence, but the majority of Jews until very recently, in fact, even till today, the majority of Jews are outside of Israel, but there's no country in the world except for Israel that has the most Jews. Israel has more Jews than the United States, than any other country in the world. But still, majority of Jews are not in Israel. The third term, title, called Rabban, that was a title that was reserved for like a great, great rabbinical authority, a patriarch. And the Nasi, the president, the Avbeistan of the rabbinical court of the Sanhedrin was the one who was given that title of Rabban. That was a really esteemed, prestigious title. So the first person to be called Rabban was Rabban Gamliel. Then there was his son, Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel. And there was Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakeh. They were all known as Rabban. These are great sages from the time before the mission was compiled. They lived in the era just before the temple's destruction. You're probably familiar with many stories of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, and perhaps in the coming weeks we could elaborate on some of them as we enter the sad period of mourning, the three weeks. The first person who was called Rabbi was Rabbi Tzadok. There was also Rabbi Lazar ben Yaakov. There were other students of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. So Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was called Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai. Sometimes we get lazy and just say Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Rabbi Elazar ben Herkinus, there was Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya, there was Rabbi Yossi HaKohen, there was Rabbi Shimon ben Netzanel, there was Rabbi Elazar ben Arach. All these sages, if you study Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers, you will see all of these great sages enumerated, listed there, and many of their teachings. Now keeping in mind that before those titles were even used, even the greatest leaders and prophets were not called rabbi, as I mentioned before. They were not insulted. In fact, it was a great privilege and honor that they were called by their very names and they were one of, they were, they were the greatest sages of our history. There was no title that they had at all. So they were called literally by their name and yet we have immense respect and honor for them. 
Now, at the time that all these titles were developed, the Jewish nation sadly was in turmoil. The first to bear them saw the destruction of the second base Amikdash. These are the people who were getting these titles as rabbis, and they lived in the time of the temple's destruction. And the institution which came with it from an oppressive Roman occupation in Israel. You think of the, the, the Palestinian name was invented by the Romans to embarrass, to insult, to humiliate the Jews. So the Romans conquered Israel. And as we were discussing, they expelled a big chunk of its Jews, but not right away. After the failed revolution by Bar Kokhba, which happened some 75 years after the temple's destruction, then came the harsh, severe rules from the emperor Hadrian. He tried to put a permanent end to Jewish presence in Israel. He's the one who banned the Sanhedrin. He didn't allow them to give smicha. He thought that would be a good way of ending the rabbinic authority in Israel. And sadly, he saw that as the Jews... You know, that he, he realized that that was, that was the true sustenance. The only way we Jews can survive would be through rabbinic, through the rabbinic authority. In fact, we go back to the story of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai when he met with the emperor Vespasian, who was not yet emperor. He was at the time the uh, Roman legion in Israel's, uh, the head of the legion. And when Rabbi Yochanan negotiates with him, he asks him for three requests, one of them being Tenli Yavna to give me Yavna and its scholars. He didn't ask for the temple to be speared because he realized it was only through the study of Torah that Judaism would survive all these years of exile. And the emperor decreed that whoever performed or received smicha, anyone ordained as a rabbi, would be executed. They'd be put to death. And additionally, he said the city in which that ordination would take place would be demolished. And all within 2,000 amas would be uprooted. Where 2,000 amas, you're talking about a kilometer, he said, would be completely uprooted. The tradition of smicha, unfortunately, was completely lost. And sadly, there was no longer that tradition, even though there were great sages at the time who tried a great personal self-sacrifice to sustain it. And so at the time, one of the great sages, Rabbi Yehuda ben Bava, when he heard about this decree, he took five of his students. You're familiar with them, Rabbi Akiva, the great sage who had just been martyred by the Romans. And he sat between two mountains and he served this was the Tchum Shabbos. The, we're, we're talking about legalities basically between two large cities, Usha and Shifarim. And when the Romans discovered these five rabbis, Rabbi Yehuda cried out to his students, my children, flee. The students replied, our teacher, what will become of you? He said, I am placed before them like a rock that cannot be overturned. It is said that the Romans did not leave the spot where they had found Rabbi Yehuda ben Bava until they had pierced him with 300 spears. That's how they murdered him so brutally. But by then, these five newly ordained rabbis were completely out of reach. And those five rabbis were Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yehuda ben Bariloi, Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Yossi, and Rabbi Lazar ben Shamua. 
according to some, Rabbi Nehemiah was also ordained there. Although Smicha was temporarily saved by this heroic act of Rabbi Yehuda ben Bava, but it became very difficult to fulfill all the requirements, especially as we discussed earlier, and particularly since the Jews were outside of the land of Israel. So it's not exactly clear when classical smicha completely stopped, but according to some, it ended in the days of Rabbi Hillel II, who became the leader of the Jews around 359 of the Common Era. Rabbi Hillel, this Rabbi Hillel, he foresaw the end of classic rabbinic ordination, and so seeing that the method that was used at the time for sanctifying the new month, which required ordained rabbis, and the whole system, which we've previously discussed at great length, so that's why he established, he set the calendar that we use to this very day. Others are of the opinion that some form of the classical ordination continued for many years after that. And they point to Rabbi Tzemach Gohan and others. They say that they continued it, be it as it may, we're going to delve deep, deep into this. And we're going to explain it with texts and visuals all Monday morning, 10 to 11 a.m. on Zoom. And just go on to our website to get the Zoom details. And you could join our discussion and learn more about the history of Smicha and the Rabbinic Court. High FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Rabbi Ari Kivan, and today we've been talking about what makes a rabbi. You could join us back here on Monday morning. Actually, it will be on Zoom on our daily shear where we're going to delve deeper into this with text-based and visual studies, and you will find it quite fascinating to learn about the history of the rabbinate. We were talking about, we concluded before discussing how the classical smicha came to an end and the revival of it and what today's smicha is. So after the Spanish expulsion of 1492, many Jews remained in Spain, and of course they couldn't publicly display their Judaism, so many of them were practicing it in secret, and they became known as Moranos. Moranos literally means pigs. That's what they were called by the local population for their adherence to Judaism in private, publicly pretending to no longer be. And so thousands of these conversa Jews eventually managed to escape from Spain and they immigrated to Israel and other countries where they could again practice their Judaism openly. These Jews were haunted. They felt really terrible by the fact that here they were. They were basically publicly pretending not to be Jewish, publicly perhaps transgressing Torah laws and desecrating Shabbos, which they knew in their heart of hearts is not what they wanted to be doing. So they felt bad for these sins that they committed in their previous lives. Many were concerned that they would never fully atone, that they couldn't do proper teshuva for this these transgressions. And so they really felt, they really carried that burden with them because they knew that some of these sins that they committed actually carried the punishment of karas, of spiritual excision by God, from God. And so in the year 1538, Rabbi Yaakov Beirav, who was the leading rabbi of Tzvat in Israel and himself a refugee from the Spanish expulsion, he came up with an original solution to this problem. He proposed the creation of a new basin, like kind of a Sanhedrin. And this Jewish court 
would carry out the punishment of malchus, of giving lashes, which can only be done by a bastin, and that would release some of these people from their punishment, the decree of karis, of the spiritual excision. The thing is, this punishment could only be administered by a rabbi who was ordained with the original classical form of smicha. So part of his plan, Rabbi Beirav thought, was to reinstate the classical form of smicha, which was based on the rulings that we discussed earlier in the second segment of today's show. And he figured that if we could do exactly that, if all the sages of the land of Israel at the time, then in the 16th century, would consent to this new reinstatement of smicha, and they would appoint judges and grant them this smicha ordination, then this would be a binding smicha, and these rabbis would then have what would make them qualified to perform, to adjudicate these cases involving penalties as was back in the time of the temple, and they could hopefully absolve these guilt-filled Jews from their their feelings. And so after much deliberation, there were 25 sages of Tzfat who were ordained by this great Rabbi Yaakov Beirav with the newly minted smicha that he reinstated. Rabbi Beirav then sent Rabbi Shlomo Chazan to Jerusalem to inform the sages in Jerusalem of the reinstitution of smicha and to ordain Rabbi Levi Ibn Chaviv, who was known as the Rabach, with the same powers, these very same ability to transmit, to convey smicha to others. But Rabbi Levi Ibn Chaviv didn't like this idea. He rejected the newly established smicha. He felt that who are we to reinstate something that the great sages before us wouldn't do? And he felt that they didn't have the consent of all the sages of Israel to do this. Unfortunately, there was a bitter exchange between the rabbis, even though they previously were best of friends. But you know how it works with Talmudic study, there's differences of opinion. And sadly, a passionate debate broke out between their, them and their followers. And in the midst of this debate, members of the opposition informed the Turkish, the Turkish government, the Ottoman Empire who controlled Israel at the time, of this smicha revival. Rabbi Beirav, he was the one responsible for all this, and sadly he felt that his life was at stake. And fearing for his life, Rabbi Beirav decided to flee to Egypt. But before doing so, he granted smicha to four of his leading disciples, to Rabbi Yosef Cairo, who we all know is the Mechaber, the author of the Shulchan Aruch, Code of Jewish Law. He gave smicha to Rabbi Moshe of Trani, another great famous sage, Rabbi Avram Shalom, and Rabbi Israel de Coriel. Of course, Rabbi Yosef Cairo is probably the most famous of these personalities, and he passed his smicha onto Rabbi Moshe Alshech, and Rabbi Moshe Alshech later ordained Rabbi Chaim Vital, who himself was the prime disciple of the great Kabbalist, the Mekubal, Rabbi Yitzchak Luria, known as the Arizal. There's no record of this smicha, though, continuing further from Rabbi Chaim Vital. And although there have been a number of additional attempts at renewing the classical smicha, none of them gained as much traction or included such prominent sages as the attempt by Rabbi Yaakov Beirav. And it seems that Jewish leaders really did not embrace these attempts, feeling that 
perhaps we have to wait for Mashiach to come in order for real, true smicha, as it was in the unbroken chain from Moshe Rabbeinu all the way until the destruction of the Second Temple to be reinstated properly. So clearly that form of smicha does not exist these days. And this, of course, brings to the obvious question, well, I stated earlier how I got my smicha and there's lots of rabbis in town, and I explained before that not every rabbi is a communal rabbi per se. You could, one could be a teacher and one could have smicha. One could just be an ordinary person and have smicha. So what exactly is today's smicha about? So despite the traditional smicha no longer existing and even the revived version of smicha not really continuing, Today, it is sort of a borrowed name. It's the idea that one studies, just as, in a sense, like you study for any other degree. You're going for your bachelor's or master's for whatever profession it is that it might be. And smicha is, I guess you could say within it, perhaps, yora yora maybe is the bachelor's of smicha. And yadin yadin is the master's of smicha. And one can take it further because there are other forms of smicha too, which are a lot more complex, especially in the times of the temple where they had to know laws related to the sacrifices. So it was probably a lot more complex back then in a way. But, you know, Jewish law evolves. The laws don't change, but times change. And it obviously has to be applicable. And one has to know how to apply ancient laws to contemporary current times. So that is perhaps why Today's rabbinic ordination is still called smicha, just as a token, a reminder of what the ancient smicha was, but not convincing ourselves that we have that exactly. And that's why today's smicha is still done. Anyone who wants to become a rabbi, that's the degree you get, you get smicha. So there's obviously no connection really to the ancient, to the original smicha. But still, one has to be qualified in order to become a rabbi. One has to study the appropriate laws. And yes, while one could receive permission to rule in any one particular area of Jewish law nowadays, but for the most part, we explained that the basic smicha, which is yore yore, is mostly related to matters, to laws relating to kashrut, to laws of, of, of kosher, you know, uh, like the basin does, you know, the the Jewish home, how a Jewish home should be conducted. And the more advanced smicha, yadin yadin, would be a dayan who could litigate in financial matters as well. And just to conclude, I want to say, the Rebbe very strongly encouraged this Qasidim. And in a sense, the Rebbe was that type of world Jewish leader. And I think all of us could take that idea from him. And it's a good idea for everyone, if you want to know what to study, study law, study halacha. It's so important to know how to conduct our homes. And I guess in that way, although not every Lubavitcher Chabadnik becomes a rabbi per se, but it's good to have a rabbi in the house. So certainly that is a good thing for each of us to do. And no doubt it doesn't necessarily make one qualified to decide, to give rulings, to answer questions in Jewish law, because I could tell you myself all the time, every rabbi has got to have a rabbi. And we need to ask questions to those who are better versed, who know more than us. And I would encourage, if you have questions when it comes to Jewish matters, don't shy away. Call the basin, call your rabbi, and every rabbi 
will consult with their own rabbi if they don't know the answer themselves because the answers in Jewish law have to obviously conform with what the guidance of Shulchan Aruch of, of Jewish law says. And I encourage each and every one of us, whenever we have personal dilemmas or questions in our Jewish life, to address those questions to our rabbis who will, in turn, if they're not sure, address it to rabbis who they know might know those laws. And until Monday, join us Monday morning, please, where you can learn this at greater detail with texts and sources as well as visuals to give us greater understanding of what we discussed today. Monday morning, 10 a.m. on Zoom. Until then, wishing you a great Shabbos. All the very best. Carpe diem. Have a great day.